Welcome to the Back Pain Podcast with Rob and Dave, the only show geared specifically to help educate you about your back pain. We talk to the experts to bust the myths, break down the science, and give you all the top tips for living pain-free. So if you're driving to work, tidy in the house, or even laid up at home in pain, we have something for everyone. Hello, podcast family, and welcome back to another episode of the Back Pain Podcast. Today's episode is the first of our myth-busting episodes. We aim in this series to cut through the nonsense that gets frequently peddled around the back pain industry and explain what it is you really should be focused on. Today's guest is the hugely popular Dr. Sam Spinelli. Sam is a doctor of physical therapy and strength and conditioning expert from Canada. He has a fantastic blog over at E3 Rehab where he, like us, was tired of outdated information in our fields getting pushed around to patients. So we thought he'd be the perfect guest to help set the record straight around a lot of these topics, including posture, stretching, should you be rounding your back when you're bending and lifting or deadlifting, amongst others. So we do go quite deep into some of these topics and there's some fantastic takeaways which you should take away and help with your back pain recovery. So if you enjoy this episode, please consider having a listen to our other episodes and if you like it even more or like those two, please consider subscribing and sharing with a friend. It would mean the absolute world to us. Now over to Sam. Enjoy. Welcome back to the Back Pain Podcast. Hello, Sam, and thank you for joining us on today's episode. Thank you for having me. Great, really glad, really great to be here. <laughs> nice, thank you. Would you like to start just by telling us a little bit about yourself and your your background? Obviously, as a as a physical therapist or a physiotherapist over here in the UK, tell us about what how you got into that and what you do now. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm up here in Canada right now. So we actually use the term physiotherapist as well. And I started out where I was initially a strength and conditioning coach, worked in professional sports and found myself really struggling when I had athletes that had injuries, which occurs, especially I was in a uh, sport that had a lot of collisions. So regularly would have issues with different things where I'd have to modify a lot of things for the athletes to keep training, but then I didn't really have a way to necessarily help them get better. And yeah, I always felt like I was out of the loop and didn't really have a good teamwork atmosphere. And I wanted to basically be able to find a means to be everything for the athletes. So that led me down to going to physical therapy school in the U.S. So then I chased down getting my doctorate. Uh, while I was there, I was very fortunate to have a lot of great mentors reach out to me online, progress my way through, really spend a lot of time reading tons of research, basically becoming obsessed with it over the next three years. And then once I finished school, I uh, went and practiced in California for a while, uh, different settings, really spent a lot of time in acute care, just felt like as a practitioner, that was an area where I didn't feel as confident. I really wanted to be comfortable in any setting. So I chose to spend a ton of time there. And then my wife became pregnant and we decided to move up back to Canada, be a little bit closer to family. And then I live up here where I have two in-person practices and specialize mostly in working with athletes of some variety. Uh, the one place I work at is more of a CrossFit gym. So I see a lot of weightlifters, powerlifters, and CrossFit athletes. And the other facility is a more general sports one where I see people from pickleball to cycling to soccer. And uh, they're from like average weekend warriors that go and play sports all the way up to people that have won multiple time Olympic medals. And basically like the on-call physio there. And then... Uh, also own or uh, co-own two different businesses, E3 Rehab and Citizen Athletics. So you're fairly busy, I think is probably <laughs> good. What's pickleball? I've never heard of pickleball. 
Oh yeah. So like I knew it existed before I came here, but I didn't really know too much about it. It's kind of an odd sport, but it's pretty fun, especially for adults. It's used on a very similar court to badminton. It's generally on tennis courts because it's done outside most of the time, but then they shrink the court down to be more similar to a badminton size. And then they use rackets that are kind of like ping pong paddles, to be honest. And then they use a wiffle ball and, um, yeah, it's really fascinating. It's uh, got a very fast change of direction sport, pretty high reaction time. Um, yeah, it's a totally different sport that I didn't expect to work with. I've, I've never heard it. So I've never even heard it. I don't think we have it over here. So it's a, it's a whole new thing. Um, so thanks for joining us today. Today's episode is kind of going to be the first of hopefully a series about myth busting. Now, the, in the back pain industry, there is a huge problem with people um, having outdated beliefs and this can drive chronic pain cycles it can drive failure to improve it can uh, drive people's non-recovery this comes from outdated practitioners who may be giving outdated beliefs it comes from um, people who don't know any better um, and uh, we need to try and get rid of it I think so you do a lot on your blog and a lot on your Instagram about myth busting and helping people understand what really happens around back pain and the myths that that that, uh, that people often hold on to. And people can be really held on to these beliefs a lot of the time. You know, it's cemented in their in in their mind for decades almost that their back pain happens because of this. The first myth I wanted to touch on was posture, which is a bit of a topic again. I know you've written about and before. People often think that posture is the cause of their back pain. So people come to see people like myself and like you and say, you know, I know that my back's bad because my posture is awful. So does posture have any link with back pain? So can posture be a cause of someone's back pain? So I always like to explain to patients that I think that posture is a relevant piece in someone's back pain experience, but it's not necessarily the direct cause in that your posture is multifactorial, just like pain is. There's a lot of things that contribute to why you choose to be in different postures, why you maintain different positions while you're standing, sitting, etc. And these different postures and positions regulate the amount of stress that's on different tissues. And there are times where this stress exceeds what the current capacity or tolerance is of these tissues. And it can be a factor in someone's pain experience. And it might be a reason why some individuals find that post hoc fallacy where I change my position or posture and I find symptomatic relief of my back pain. Now, it's not necessarily an end-all be-all. It's not a direct line where, you know, if you're someone that has anterior pelvic tilt, if you just posteriorly tilt slightly, you instantly have no more back pain. It's not well correlated. We don't see strong statistics encouraging that it's a thing we need to address in non-symptomatic patients. So like if you are someone that doesn't have back pain, you probably don't need to worry about it. If you have back pain, you don't necessarily need to worry about it. But if it's something that you're open to experimenting with and playing with and understanding that the means for it is that it's to temporarily offload some stress that you might not be currently able to tolerate, then it's a viable option to experiment with. And for me, my goal is to provide my patients with different activity modifications that can allow them to return to the best function they can and then start to grade back exposure over time so that they feel like they can do anything that they want and not worry about it. I don't want them to be afraid of sitting with a flex spine. I don't want them to be afraid to bend over with a flex spine. 
I don't want them to be worried about standing in an extended position, but we might need to modify it if those things are limiting them from performing the desired activities in their life. And that's something that I see commonly. And I think that's where for people who are, you know, previous therapists or people that have had experience with changing posture and find success with it. I think that that often that explanation often helps to reconcile some of the reasons why you see a new age of therapists and a new age of information kind of like challenging the idea and they can struggle with that where it's not that we're saying posture is stupid and that you should never consider it and that it's just completely out of our minds. It's just like, it's not necessarily as important as we thought and it doesn't need to be addressed as much as we thought in the line of rationale behind why we could consider utilizing a change in posture is just different than what we used to believe. Do you approach it more from a, uh, the patient's fear of movement or the someone with back pain's fear of movement and getting, it's more of a movement thing as opposed to, you know, so changing posture is about getting them to move and getting them to change position and getting them to change the load on different tissues as opposed to sitting into a perfect posture. So for some people, might that might that be encouraging them to slouch more or extend more or whatever? It's not necessarily sit up tall, shoulders back, you know, like there's a pile of books on your head, like our grandmothers used to tell us. So it's just, it's, it's the change, which is the most important thing. Yeah, absolutely. Like just now, while you and I have been talking, it's only been a few minutes. And we both have probably changed our general posture three to four times just in those few minutes. And that's inherently just a normal thing to do. There's no set position that is this magical thing that everyone needs to be able to maintain or is necessarily a secure position that never has inherent risk. It's just like our body thrives on changing position and movement. All of them have different benefits. All of them have possibly minor negative aspects. But the end of the day is that our body is going to want to change. It's going to want to find a new position relatively after a certain amount of time. It's just like how long can you maintain that time in that position and do you need to maintain more time for some reason so how do you think that then these myths come about is that often because of that um you know post hoc fallacy where you know i was in pain and i changed and i felt better um or is it beliefs that are peddled with you know posture correction devices and you know orthotics in the shoes that change your posture because it is a very ingrained myth that you know, you sit in bad posture, you have back pain or neck pain or, or, or shoulder pain. What are your opinions as to how this has come about, really? Yeah, I think it's a really interesting one. And it's so challenging because the first part is that a post hoc fallacy, which for anyone that doesn't know what that means, it's, it's essentially where you have a line of reasoning that you do an action, you see a change. The assumption is that the change caused the result. So in this case, you have a extended spine and you flex it and you no longer have pain. It was because being an extension was bad or the reverse. And I think the obvious thing is that we as humans utilize the post-hoc fallacy to survive, thrive, make all of our decisions on a regular basis. It's a part of our Bayesian modeling for our brain. It's like an inherent thing that is great for us, but also can set us up for a lot of failure. And it's part of why we need to be critically reasoning and have different checks in place to hold us to an account to really take a deeper dive on different topics. From a standpoint of like, how did this become so ingrained in our field and in the whole world? 
there's a couple of different things I've thought about. And uh, in 2018, I was actually brought on for the World Posture Summit and um, got to ask to be a presenter at it. I'm not really sure that they had followed me very closely when they asked because <laughs> I was the only person person that was a part of the podcast or a part of the, a part of the summit that didn't advocate actively thinking about your posture. But during that, I spent a good few months just like digging into as much information about posture as I could and what kind of drove us to this position. One of the earliest things that I could find was actually from England, and it was on the um, patriarchal um, standpoint of the kings and queens and all of the, um, the royalty perspective of that you need to maintain this pretty position to demonstrate that you were above all these other people and that by maintaining this tall posture, that's one of the reasons why that book thing that you made the comment about, that's where it comes from. There's actually like this, uh, this small little chapter in a, um, royalty handbook that you can find. I think it's from like 1600 it has these pictures of them and they're like describing why it's so important to be able to demonstrate your pose and your value as an individual in society. And then I think the emphasis that that place obviously over time started to transfer into other areas. And then you can find one of the earliest texts that really talks about this in the field of pain and rehab is the Kindle and Kindle book. I don't know if you guys use that in the UK. A, a Kindle, yeah. Wait, a, yeah. a Kindle in terms of the digital e-reader? No, uh, Kindle, K-E-N-D-A-L-L. Kindle and Kindle is the... It's like a black or slight, yeah, uh, it's the author and the, it's like a black slash purple covered text and has a picture of uh, anatomy of nerves and stuff on the front. It's like a very classical text. It's from like the 1960s. Okay. I think Kendall and Kendall is actually American, but it's one of the biggest texts and I've seen it utilized all over the world. And it was one of the earliest books that talked about how to actually test muscles um, they, they were one of the ones that started off manual muscle testing and kind of expressing how we could grade muscle testing, all these different things. And they based their entire premise on posture. And it was that we did manual muscle testing from a position of this upright posture. And we did all of these things that were all centered around being in a good posture. And that really just like was the main text for thousands and thousands of therapists around the world. And I think that's one of the big reasons why it became so inundated in the rehab world as well. Yeah, and it's and then it's just then filtered down and trickled down, and you know that get taught to taught to a generation of physiotherapy students who then go out into the wider world and see you know five thousand patients a year, and then that's five thousand people who have that ingrained you know myth, I guess, um, and undoing that takes a whole nother generation so if not longer um you know because that those patients will then tell their families and their husbands and their wives and their children that oh sit up tall or you'll hurt your back or and it's it's a big thing we notice with school children um i see a lot of patients who come to see me and their parents have brought them in um because they're worried about their their daughter son child's posture and they think you know he's obviously going to have back pain for life because she sits like this all day in in, in a in a school and it's, for me, a really interesting thing to unpack because often there's a lot more to that particular posture, exactly as you said. This patient doesn't even have pain at this time, but the patient, the parent is worried about their posture. But when you unpack it, 
they're often quite shy or they're quite nervous or especially in, t- in teenage females, they're, they're a lot taller and they don't want to be tall and they kind of sit down a bit. So they don't want to be stuck out and no one likes being a teenager. You know, it's an awkward time for everyone. So uh, no one wants to be the person that's, that's yeah, the sort of stuck out like a sore thumb, really. So it's something which, you know, unpacking that and talking about that with the patients can actually really help them to understand that uh, it's not necessarily going to give them chronic back pain for the next 20 or 30 years. Yeah. And that's where like, for me, when I'm having those kind of conversations with patients, I do utilize a lot of research and I try to return back to our relevant different statistics on, you know, how often we see individuals with these different postures and not have pain, or that we can see that we can have a change in pain or a change in function without necessarily changing posture. And at least when I'm interacting with patients in person, they often report that that stuff really helps them feel more confident in it. And that's a big centerpiece of where I pull in more research, usually on the topic. No, and I think that confidence goes hand in hand with it. And I think that's what, you know, if when somebody is sat nervous, they're generally not sat upright. But I mean, maybe if they're waiting for a job interview, but, you know, they're, they're, they're nervous. They're probably, you know, sat quietly somewhere. Often in, you know, what you'd class as poor posture, you know, slumped forward, rounded shoulders, all that anterior head carriage thing, which we were all taught. Um, but the, you know, when someone's confident and, you know, when someone comes, when someone comes across with these big auras, you think of people like Barack Obama, he's always in this perfect posture, you know, he's always got that really, and it's, it's an influential position to be in, you know, to have that, it gives that era of authority. Definitely. There's actually a lot of research on posture and psychology for anyone that's never looked into that stuff. I know a lot of people in our field are often looking at the correlations of posture and pain, but then there is tons on um, posture and different emotions and where you see different tendencies towards that. Like the, a lot of the points that you outlined. And any, any, and it stems back, I don't know if you've read a, a book called The Book of the Five Rings, um, which talks about Kelly Starrett, um, uses it a lot of his thing, and he always talks about your warrior stance. And this is written, I don't know, however many um, centuries ago. I think it's written in, the, I want to say the 14, 14th century. Um, and he was a, um, a warrior from Japan um, in that time. And he wrote a book on becoming the perfect warrior. Um, and it's all about, you know, one of his cores is keeping your core strong and your posture up. And that's how you can raise your sword. And that's how you can fight properly from this fighting stance, you know. And so it goes back as far as that, really, in terms of posture, I guess. You know, they didn't call it posture at the time. They called it their warrior stance or their fighting stance. But it, it's, that's yeah, 600 years ago. Yeah, exactly. It's a very long ingrained belief. So are there, are there any postures which you would uh, describe as bad? You know, are there, is there ever a time when you say to a patient, you know, who, but just by looking at a patient that they need to, you know, whether that's a, you know, anterior pelvic tilt or a posterior pelvic tilt or a slump forward position, is that ever bad for them to stay in that position for long times? Or is it just the lack of movement that's bad? Yeah, if we're talking about it from a standpoint of pain, no, I'm cool with whatever you like, whatever you are comfortable with. That's the biggest thing that I tell patients is like, if you are comfortable, you're good to go. When you're uncomfortable, change to a different one. Right. Um, yeah, that's hit the nail on the head perfect. I, I say the same thing, so that's good. What about uh, working postures? So people who are spending a lot of time, whether that's you know, people who work on conveyor belt type positions or manual laborers, is there any correlation with working postures and, and pain or back pain? That's actually a very tricky one. Um, so I've read a lot on this field. 
for a few different projects I've worked on, and the consistency is extremely variable. So if you dig into some of the research, such as like you talked about conveyor belts. So for people that are picking up objects off of a conveyor belt, either working off of it, working on an item that's on the conveyor belt or taking it off, moving on to something else, some level of that, the consistency of the likelihood of someone having back pain in these different positions is extremely variable. So um, we see that a very flexed posture doesn't necessarily hold much association to having back pain. By having, flex, you mean bent over, sorry, just clarifying. Yeah. Yes. You mean bent over a conveyor belt, bent over a lower table or something, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and we're talking about from a static position first. I'll, I'll talk about uh, a moving position in a second, but from a static position, a bent over flexed posture doesn't show a consistent relationship between any real injuries or pain. A extended position doesn't either. And actually in the middle positions, there's a lot more variance in the likelihood of injury, which is quite interesting. Um, the, the more neutral range, which we often claim to be the, um, the safe zone, is the one that tends to actually highlight as having a greater risk. And one of the theories that's put out in a few of the different ergonomic papers is that most of the time, if you are in a more static, relaxed, like uh, maintaining a set posture for long duration, you'll probably be more often in one of the extreme spots. And so you likely are developing a relative um, higher capacity and tolerance to those positions. And then when you do deviate to this one that you're not used to, that's when the person then experiences the injury. That's one of the theories that's out there about the static posture. When we're looking at more of like a dynamic movement from a standpoint of, you know, like you're picking up an object and you have a very rounded back, um, should you utilize your back to lift it? Should you utilize your legs to lift it? It's actually very fascinating because individuals who are more likely to use their legs to lift an object in the classical term where you try to squat down to pick it up, those people actually experience a slightly higher rate of injuries than the individuals who use a more stoop style where you like bend more forward to pick it up. The idea is a bit of a chicken or egg situation because usually these individuals are often ones who have possibly had a previous back injury and have adopted that style to try to offload their back as a means to try to experience not another back injury. So it's not necessarily like a straightforward answer when they do a review of people that have never experienced a back injury. They don't necessarily see that stand out as strongly. So basically in the work area, we don't see a consistency in that any posture increases your likelihood, whether it be static or dynamic for pain or injury. I think the biggest thing in most cases, and this is just like outside of work, is that if you are not used to a position, if you're not used to a different movement, that's when you're at a more likelihood of experiencing some, some kind of injury. Like if you are used to using a standard conveyor belt where you face it slightly more to your left and you rotate to your right, and then one day you got switched to the other side, if you tried to go at your same pace, same load, everything, but it's on the opposite side and you've never done that for the last 10 years, that's the time where you probably are at a slightly more increased risk just because you're not used to it. 
And that's the part that sometimes people don't recognize and don't think of. But if you can try to draw like an idea of, you know, if you have someone who mostly sits at a desk and they're not a highly active person, you say, well, if you went and did a hike tomorrow and you hiked over the mountains and did 20 kilometers, do you think you'd be really sore the next day? Well, that, that obviously makes sense. And it's like, well, it's the same kind of principle. And I love yeah. that. And that's that. So <laughs> you, you see sitting and desk working and we use posture, but you know, we talk about sitting as if you see it as an exercise and, you know, if, as exactly as you said, if you went for a long hike or a 20 mile run and you had only ever run 2k in the last two months, that's going to be a sudden change. And you wouldn't be surprised if your back hurt or your knee hurt or your ankle hurt. You wouldn't necessarily think you've done any serious damage. You wouldn't necessarily think you've, you, you've broken it. Like, you know, some people will associate with their back, but they just, you know, you know that, oh, I've just overdone it. Whereas you don't often get that because people think as sitting as resting, where in fact you are putting load through, or certain, I say sitting, certain postures, people see it as resting. When you are putting load through tissues, whether that's the discs, whether that's the muscles, whether that's the joints, and if you're not used to it, then you're going to have pain. It doesn't necessarily mean that something is broken or needs to be fixed. It just means that it needs to calm down a bit, basically, afterwards. You don't, you don't really think of it as exercise. And so when you put it into those terms, it's much easier to, to kind of understand. Um, I think to segue quite nicely from the posture, but in kind of talk about it a little bit as well, was what I, again, I know another topic, given your strength and conditioning type background, is kind of the lifting and bending with, with a rounded back. So if we can kind of move on to myth two, which is, you know, you should never bend your back when you're doing a deadlift or you should never bend your back when you're lifting something up. We've just touched on that previous, previously about actually people who do lots of lifting with, you know, more of a knee focused li lift, I should say, um, then they actually have a, a higher correlation potentially of having some back pain. Um, but obviously there's so many factors that you know, previous episodes that may, may, may be responsible. So as a, you know, physical therapist, as a strength and conditioning coach, do you advocate or allow people? Um, what's your stance with you know, people rounding their back in their deadlift? Yeah. So for anyone that would like a really in-depth breakdown of this entire topic, I actually wrote a huge blog that's on Stronger by Science. You can find it by uh, searching Stronger by Science Lumbar Flexion. And basically like my goal with that article, I put it out like two years ago. We'll pop it in the show and notes as well. So. Yeah, it's uh, probably the largest thing ever put out on the topic of lumbar flexion in relation to lifting objects. Yeah, and yeah. I would say sports in general. I go through a little bit on the topic of like Brazilian jiu-jitsu, football, everything. And so there, there's a lot to unpack in it. And one of the first parts when someone really talks about this is to make a clear dissociation of like when we flex our back and we lift weights we need to understand kind of like the thing we just talked about of like how much experience do you have in those different positions and how adapted are your tissues to that that's the big thing of like when we look at lifting most of the time people aim to lift with a relatively consistent pattern so if i have someone who is deadlifting they're a moderately experienced deadlifter and they come and see me and I watch them deadlift and they have a slight lumbar flexion while they deadlift, but it's the pattern that they regularly utilize, the pattern that they, um, they defer to and they don't really have any, like they're not actively having any issues. I'm not going to try to change it in any way personally. 
if I see someone who is lifting weights and is new to the activity and they have that posture, I might encourage them to get into a little bit more of ex extended position, not because I necessarily think it's more of a risk, but because I think that they are more likely to be having a better performance in that slightly more extended position. And that's also how I term it to the person. Because when we look at it from a biomechanical standpoint, you have a better leverage to maneuver the weight if you're in a slightly more extended position. So most of the time, if I'm ever going to make the change, it's, it's usually in the context of performance, not necessarily in the context of pain. If I have someone who is currently experiencing back pain while trying to deadlift, I'll experiment with both extending and flexing their spine more to see what allows them to keep doing that. I will lower down the total volume, lower down the intensity, all these factors, because it is a new position, it is a new pattern that they're not accommodated to. And we need to first uh, find a solution to be able to return back. If like they're a very, I want to deadlift kind of person, we need to find a way to get them back to it. If they don't care about deadlift, I'm not going to get them to deadlift. But well, different. So it's yeah. a similar principle to the posture and the walking over the mountain and everything. It's, it's that load on the tissues. If you're, you know, your spine adapts to what you're used to and the discs adapt and they load and they get stronger and the, you know, the muscles adapt and they load and they got stronger. And people, you know, know this with muscles. If you go and do a thousand bicep curls a day for the next, you know, month, your bicep is going to be better at doing bicep curls at the end of that compared to before. You might be sore for the first part of it, but you will adapt and you get better. And people think that, you know, discs and spines wear out with use when in fact it's the opposite. You know, discs get better and they, you know, there's an old analogy that people say, oh, you know, your spinal joints are like a hinge. If you keep using it, keep using it, it will eventually rust off and fall off the door. And that might happen with the, with the door, but with the spine, it's actually the opposite. The more you use it in certain positions, the more it likes to be moved and the stronger and better it gets at, at doing that movement. So like with a deadlift, if someone has been deadlifting for a long time or, you know, and they've got that slightly flexed spine they're probably better at doing that than someone that's never you know picked anything up off the floor before um yeah i think that the whole topic has a lot that goes with it like one aspect is you know we just talked about it more from a standpoint of pain if you are not used to a certain position not used to a certain pattern you possibly have a slightly higher risk when you change it and that might be when you experience pain i think that's a common time when you hear about someone who's like oh, I hurt my back deadlifting. And then you discuss it more with them and you find out, okay, well, you hurt your back deadlifting when you went to go lift a weight you had never done before or a number of reps or something that you weren't necessarily actually prepared to do and it required you to change your position such as going into more flexion. And when we consider that, there's a lot that happens during that change in position, particularly not at the discs, but actually at the muscle level where if you start in, let's say, what's called a neutral spine or a slightly extended spine in the bottom of a deadlift, and you go to lift, and you start to round, your lumbar extensors, which are a primary mover in that and are one of the most loaded things, they actually undergo an eccentric contraction, which is a lengthening, which we know is actually the highest risk time for them to experience some sort of muscle injury, and is one of the primary drivers of muscle damage, which... It's not necessarily a big deal, but it's a simple fact that if you do an eccentric contraction, you have an increased risk of experiencing muscle soreness. And so then you did something that you were not prepared for. It caused you to change your position. You went through an eccentric contract. Like you have literally everything that would classify as 
you have an increased chance of being sore from this. And now you're surprised and you blame that you flex. Well, it's not necessarily that. So it just, it like makes sense. <laughs> yeah. It, but then we does, also have, yeah. And then we also have the actual injury standpoint and you talked about discs, um, being able to adapt. That is a very tricky one in our current time because we only have like a limited, limited amount of data that actually shows that discs like we know that discs will recover from injury. We know that they will reabsorb. We know that they can um, modify back to a quote unquote like original state. How well they can uh, adapt and thicken and get stronger, those kinds of things. We have very limited data just because it's extremely hard to look at a disc inside of a human across time like you're not going to find too many people that are cool with you sticking in a probe and having it go into your disc and maintaining that insertion for a long duration of time so most of our information is based on like uh, pig spines or human cadavers and that's the mcgill so, work and you know there was the pig there's spines a lot of and, yeah, yeah yeah a lot of it is on all this kind of stuff and the thing is a lot of times that data is utilized against lumbar flexion but if you really actually go and look at it, like the McGill one is a classic one where they had people or they had pig spines flexed for 86,400 cycles continuously and looked at how many of them um, got injured. And they found that they, they got hurt flexing. But the part that people don't really consider is like, yeah, they didn't have time to adapt, all these kinds of things. But it also- It wasn't living tissue. Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't a living tissue. And then also, if you look at the range of motions that they went through- it was a maximum flexion. Like they took it to end range flexion. That's not like a common thing that happens. And when they look at different ranges, there's other studies that have looked at the same thing and used less flexion cycles, but also utilize less range because in the McGill study, they called it um, 300% flexion. In other studies, they've gone to what's called 100% flexion where they basically don't push the end range as hard and they show drastically lower rates. And in the McGill study too, where they did the 86,000 uh, cycles, they also had other injuries that occurred. Like they had spondylolisthesis occurs um, and other end plate fractures, which are more associated with actually extension. And they actually occurred at a higher rate than disc herniations. So it's just like very interesting how like a lot of the information from an injury standpoint has been spun to be these very negative things about flexion but there's just as much on extension. And then if you get into a lot of the other papers that are out there on mechanistic stuff. So for instance, there's a few studies that were done on impulse pressure. So if someone were to fall on their butt, for instance, uh, it's the equivalent of a compression force on the spine. So they do that exact kind of thing in a lab. And they find that if you are in a neutral position, you actually are a drastically higher likelihood of having some sort of serious injury versus if you're flexed or extended. And that actually matches up more with sitting because we often think about sitting as being almost all the data that they compare sitting to in the, the skewed world, I would call it, is drawing data from where they do like lots of flexion cycles. Whereas if you look at the data that would be more similar, be up and down pressure. And so that's like the compression studies. And those actually don't support flexion being dangerous. So... Yeah, for anyone that wants more of a breakdown, I go through like all of the studies in that article. Brilliant. So 
you know, the takeaway is flexion is not the boogeyman that everybody thinks it is. I know that we spoke there about deadlifting. I don't know that some people listening will do lots of deadlifts and some people won't. Some people may have never heard or even done a deadlift. But, you know, deadlifting is a tool that I use a lot in my practice with patients. And it's something where a lot of people can be very fearful of doing. You know, I say, here's a kettlebell, pick it up from the floor. But then, and they're scared of doing that, even with a very light kilo, you know, a, a five, six kilo, even up to an eight kilo kettlebell. But then they're very happy to bend over and pick up their child from the floor. So it is a very transferable skill. So having that ability and that, like walking over the mountain, I know we come back to that again, you know, to, to be fearful of, of picking up a weight from the floor, you're never not going to pick up anything from the floor, whether that's your mobile phone, whether it's tying up your shoes, you know, you have to bend and flex in order to do that. So only by doing deadlifts and by repeating that movement, you get good at that. Good, you, you get good at it and you learn how to do it, I guess. Bang on. Yeah, I love me some deadlifts. I love deadlifts, yeah. And sometimes you pull out a kettlebell and people's faces go, what am I going to do with that? That's far too heavy. I can't, you know, I can't lift that up. And it's, uh, but it's only 15 kilos and they're, you know, three bags of shopping from, you know, Tesco down the road weigh, weigh that much. And they're perfectly happy to unload that three or four times out the car, you know, without thinking about it. So preparing people to do that is important. So one thing I like to do, and I was going to ask what, what you do is, for patients who have this fear reflection, so often someone that's bent forwards and, you know, in their words, their back's gone. You know, my back went when I bent over to do my shoes up or pick up my sunglasses from the floor. Um, how do you then explain to them that we need to get you flexing and get you bending? And, and what does it look like for you to, to help someone who has that, you know, fear or that sharp pain when they, when they flex forward? How do you unpack that and what's your approach? Yeah, so you made a great point there when you were comparing the grocery bags to deadlifting. And that's one of the things that I like to do with patients is where I try to change the context of it so that it makes more sense to them or change the context so it becomes de-threatened. So if your fear is to bend forward, and my goal is to start to encourage you getting comfortable in flexing your spine, being able to you know get into that bent over position, and I can't get you to be less fearful of it in that standard way, then I might change the context of, for instance, being in a quadruped position. So on your hands and knees, and now we're going to try and see if I can get you to do it there. Or I might just get you to be in that position and rock back, trying to have your butt come towards your heels. And as you do that, I'm not telling you to only go through your hips or anything like that. Just let, let you do what you do. And it's, you end up in that child pose-ish like position that's in yoga. And when you look at that, most of the time, people will round their back to some level. Or will go through a cat-cow style movement where you're rounding your back and extending your back. And people get, start to gain comfort and confidence that I can now go into flexion, at least in some position, and it won't hurt. And as you start to recognize that it's okay, then we can usually transfer that over into different positions and work our way into standing. And that might take us where, you know, we're going to be in standing with your hands on a desk and doing it and just start to gradually expose you to different positions so that you gain confidence to then do it in any position. Um, that's one of the big ones that I try to do where I look to see what the person's current comfort is and then try to work our way to that. Yeah. Push it a bit. Yeah. And it's, and I do a lot of things like just supine slumps type movements. You know, if they're very fearful of flexion, um, you know, you can get them to do a, a supine slump. Often that might be too sore and it might jab a bit, but through slow, repeated movements, then often you can improve it significantly. Or even if that's too sore, something like a knees to chest lying on your back. And you can you can add quite a lot of flexion to the spine in that position. 
And then once you've shown the patient that actually you are, you're still bending the spine and often these patients who are completely upright and have, you know, don't want to move forward at all, you can show them that, you know, we've just done more flexion there than you would do and no nothing has happened. And often that fear of movement drives so much more. And we spoke, we had a whole chronic pain episode. We spoke to Dr. Derek Griffin. I'm not sure if you're aware of him, who's a chronic pain expert, who's unbelievably knowledgeable in the area. Uh, he's great. Yeah. He's br brilliant. What he doesn't know about pain isn't worth, isn't worth knowing. But we, um, we, we unpack that about, uh, uh, yeah, about that fear and how that, you know, drives. It's not just a, you know, it's just one of the massive drivers towards pain, the fear and doubt and, you know, apprehension i guess is the word i'm looking for um so that no that's really good and i think your approach is very similar to my approach then in terms of that and getting people deadlifting and getting people squatting and getting people you know moving and it's something which is again peddled by you know snc coaches and crossfit people and all those type of things and i'm a crossfitter myself i've done crossfit since 2007 i think you know i've done it for a long long time before there was even any box in the uk i think i did, I did crossfit and uh um, we, and, you know, and it's, I remember lifting and when I started lifting, I started squatting, I started deadlifting, everything was from this rigid, rigid neutral spine position. Um, and it was kind of a given that, well, you'd kind of flex a bit when you went up to your 95%, you know, max, but, you know, I'm, I spent years squatting, you know, perfectly to make it, you know, I'm, I'm never going to butt wink. I'm never going to round my back when I squat. And, you know, as soon as I relaxed a bit on that, I was like, oh, I'm actually, I'm, I'm much more comfortable squatting. Um, I'm in less pain afterwards when I squat and my back hurts less. And I'm, cause I'm not in these fixed positions. My hips weren't quite as tight and, and I'm someone with quite good mobility. So, you know, as soon as I relaxed on that, I actually just got better rather than having to worry too much about it. So, you know, I think that people listening to are, you know, in the CrossFit realm as well, then actually, you know, squat, don't worry about it. Exactly. Yeah. It's one of the biggest things that I, I work with a lot of CrossFitters so then, the common thing that I will implement with them is just trying to get them comfortable to relax and just go through movements without focusing so much on it. So true. Um, I think then that brings on probably the last topic we'll have time to, to speak about today is fits in quite nicely with squatting and mobility is stretching. Um, now stretching is again, another controversial topic. I mean, especially amongst the healthcare professionals, People listening who are, are patients, which are, I know the majority of you, are probably assume that stretching is the best thing you can be doing for your back pain. And people often come in and think, okay, what stretches can I be doing? But stretching isn't always the best thing that we can be doing. In fact, you know, it's not the best way. We know that it's not the best way to make a tissue longer. It might feel nice as you're doing it, but it doesn't have any long-term changes to a muscle or to a tendon or to a, or to a joint, really. There are better ways. So... Sam, I guess from your perspective, you know, what does stretching actually do? If someone's doing a hamstring stretch or someone's doing a, a back stretch, they might call it, what does that actually do to the muscle? Does it lengthen it? Does it shorten it? Does it help at all? So when we're looking at most stretches, like the ones you just gave examples of, we're basically looking at what's called a static stretch. And yes, we're yeah. Going in, yeah, going in and maintaining a position for a, a X duration of time and coming out of it. And it's, yeah, it's, highly inundated in our field that it is the key to managing different painful conditions. And unfortunately it's not really the case. And so when we're looking at it from a mechanistic level, more of what we see actually occurring is that we go down, we get into this position and we have a certain level of neural tone 
So for instance, like, let's say that I try to bend forward and I'm going to try to stretch my hamstrings and I'm bending forward. I can get to, I don't know, 110 degrees of hip flexion. And that's kind of like where I stop. And then I keep going and I keep trying to stretch further for 30 to 60 seconds. And I find that now I'm at 120 degrees. Well, that mostly happened because our nervous system has relaxed and allowed us to gain comfort into that extent, that further flexed position. And it's now calmed down and seeing that it's less fearful. The challenge there is that most of our research shows that that static stretch really dissipates its effect after somewhere between 30 and 60 minutes. And that's kind of like on the more nice side of the results. So basically, like you stretch now, you feel good for a little while, uh, or you gain the range of motion benefit, and then it's gone within an hour. We don't really see it consistently later on. The only time that this really changes, if you are someone that regularly static stretches, and when I say regularly, I mean three to six times a week for multiple bouts, then we see it having a longer lasting effect. But that doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be beneficial. And that's a big one there is like whether or not it has these effects, does it actually help? And when we look at our global body of research on does stretching really have that beneficial of an impact on back pain, it really doesn't appear to be all that helpful, at least not more helpful than almost anything else we could do. Almost every other intervention that we could pick from a active standpoint is going to provide more benefit. You could go walking, you could do dynamic stretching, you could do loaded exercises, you could do yoga, almost anything where that involves a higher degree of active motion and you will get more benefit. Static stretching is like not bad inherently by any means. I don't discourage my patients to do it. I just encourage them to pick other options where possible. If someone's getting a short-term relief from, uh, you know, whether, whether it's back pain, say, if someone's getting a short-term relief from doing some hamstring stretches or some hip flexor stretches, there's no downside to doing that. So they, they can stretch till the cows go home if they want to. If it gives them that 30 to 60 minutes, by all means have it. However, if they're doing that in place of something else, you know, think, oh, I'm not going to go for a walk, I'm going to do two minutes of stretching, then that's when you might step in and say, maybe think about doing this on top of that or, you know, doing something slightly different yeah exactly like we just don't have a lot of benefit from the stretching other than possibly some short-term symptomatic changes for some people it's not consistent and even the type of stretch is not consistent so yeah when someone asks me if a patient wants to do it we do through we go through that general conversation about other options etc but if they still are adamant that they want to I'll provide them a few different things that they can try and whichever one they like is just the one that I say and that's what you can do whenever you feel like it. But yeah, the priorities are going to almost always be we need to get on a progressive walking program. We need to get on a progressive lifestyle management program. Consider doing some resistance training. Start crushing life. Start crushing life. I love that. So the, <laughs> I love that. So the you know, those short-term benefits, you know, you kind of mentioned it's a, a neural mechanism. So it's the nerves and the brain that are controlling that. So is that like a, a protective mechanism? So as you say, when you're bending forward and you can only get to your knees, you know, that's not necessarily just your hamstring saying, oh, they, they haven't reached the end of their length. It's more the brain saying, okay, that's the end or as far as we want you to go. If you then hold that longer, the brain says, okay, you can go another, you, you can get down to your shins, you know, and it lets you go a few more degrees. 
So it's, you're not actually lengthening the muscle from, you know, it's not making it five centimeters longer. It's just relaxing a little bit via the brain's controlled mechanisms. Yeah, it would be most heavily what you just described. And then there would also be this thing called the viscoelastic, uh, viscoelastic property as well, which is where our muscles are made extremely, um, uh, they have an extremely high amount of water content, I think 70 to 80% water content. And as you go down into a bench stretch, you essentially are putting tension on the muscle that is then exerting force against that water content. And the water will actually gradually seep out slightly and it accommodates you to actually keep moving uh, bent over more. So, so, so yes. they, they, they change shape a bit almost and allow you allow you to do that. But as soon as you get up and walking around, it all moves back in. And then that's why that's, you got that 30 to 60 minute kind of, kind of threshold. And I yeah. think, you know, even before I was, you know, training and I graduated in 2000, I started in 2007. And by then we were still stretching, but we knew that we weren't stretching for warms for warm-ups and, you know, that type of, you know, when I was at school, that's what we did. Everybody, you know, touch the floor 10 times and get your muscles warm up, you know. And then as I kind of got older, it was more into the dynamic type warm up. And then when, when university, university would stop stretching for warm ups, but we were still stretching for pain. So it's slowly filtering in and, you know, it's getting there, is <laughs> getting there slowly. So if that doesn't, you know, if a bent over toe touch doesn't lengthen the hamstrings or, or lengthen any muscle, what is the best thing to lengthen a muscle? Uh -huh. Well, the first thing would be like, why do we want to lengthen a muscle? But that's probably a Good very idea. long discussion, which we could always yeah. get into. Here. But if we're looking at having a meaningful change on the length of a tissue, one of our best options is resistance training in a slow, controlled format through as much range as we currently have available and progressing that over time. That shows to be consistently the best option. And when we're talking about controlled, slow resistance training, it's doing an active form of that where you go through an eccentric and concentric contraction. So you, um, for instance, in the case of like the hamstrings, you could do something like a Romanian deadlift where you emphasize going through your hips, minimizing your knee bend, and you really like a stiff, stiff legged deadlift. Yeah. 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 Yeah, exactly. And you try to really utilize as much hamstring motion as possible. And then you go slow down, you come back up and you do so under a, a smooth tempoed pace. You're not going fast. And that shows to be consistently the best outcome or the best intervention that we have for changing length. And that's because the other one, which is proved popular in the Instagram is the Nordic hamstring curls, which is for those who aren't aware are the ones where you're, you're kneeling in a tall position and someone holds onto your heels and you lean your upper body forwards as far as slowly as you can and try and correct back. I've also seen some injuries on, on that. And I don't know what your thoughts are on those, but, uh, so I love, I love the Nordic hamstring curl from a standpoint of like reducing injury risk for the hamstring. There's, there's always a risk of any injury when you do stuff like this, but they show consistently to be beneficial for reducing the likelihood of someone sustaining a future hamstring injury. And the, the mechanism behind that is like super complex. I've tackled this a couple of times on a few different podcasts and done a lot of research on it. Uh, I've got a few blogs and YouTube videos on E3 rehab about them. But when we look at the research on it, it does show that it has an ability to add sarcomeres in length, which is, I think, what you're talking about there from changing length. The tricky thing is, is does adding sarcomeres in length actually change the length? Because what a, what a sarcomere does is that it increases 
the possible length that the muscle could change because it's essentially like the contraction unit but that doesn't necessarily mean that you actually increase the total length because what you're doing there is you have for instance a set origin and a set insertion you have a set tendon length etc and you're just adding on another piece of contraction possibility within the set length and that's where like this is a super complex topic that um, I get into in the strength and conditioning world a bunch yeah yeah and we could talk about this for for six hours you know purely just on you know sarcomere length which is not for this audience it's not for me it's not for today but you know we can go down this to another topic so i guess the last thing then was you mentioned why would you want to lengthen a tissue why would you want to lengthen a muscle um people assume that you know short muscles are, are aren't good muscles so if you can't bend over and touch the floor and this is a myth i noticed very quickly when i started private practice was people, especially in the 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 older population, so I'd probably say they're kind of seventy plus when I when I noticed the senior population, noticed that they always associated touching the floor with fitness. And I remember after my first few weeks of graduating, I phoned my grandmother and I said, "I've got all these patients coming in, and they're saying I've never been very fit. I can't touch the. I've never been able to touch the floor." And it was like their measure of fitness. And she said, "Oh, when we were at school." Um, back in the in the 40s, she said the fitness was you, d- you did star jumps and you touched the floor 10 times. You know, that was kind of your morning wake up fitness, um, which I think is more than our school children do even nowadays. Um, but the uh, you know, <laughs> every day anyway. Um, but and that was a measure of their fitness. And so that's kind of trickled down. So patients now who are saying that they assume that they should be able to touch the floor and that, you know, which is effectively hamstring and, you know, sciatic tension and, and calf length. They associate that with fitness, and if they don't have fitness, they're going to have back pain. So it's got that correlation, but not necessarily a causation. Yeah, exactly. Now you hit the nail on the head there. And along with the, uh, the toe touch, there's also the um, sit and reach test. I don't know if you know that one. Yeah. Yeah. Same same concept. So that's where like so many people view that as like their fitness. But yeah, it just like really doesn't appear to be that meaningful. Most people have a sufficient ability to go through general ranges of motion that they need for their daily lives. And that more often than not, you're not limited by range of motion. There's definitely some cases where people are. Um, but more, more of the case is that you're limited in how much you can move from a volume standpoint or how much load you can tolerate. And that's where I think a lot of the best treatments come in of that we can start to layer that on through resistance training, through movement training, all these different things versus just stretching or manual interventions, all these different things that are aimed at these aspects that don't necessarily transfer over to people having a meaningful change in their life. Would it be fair to say then that um, lengthening the hamstrings, for example, if we keep you only use hamstrings, it's a really easy Everybody, everybody knows what tight hamstrings feel like, and lots of people do have tight, you know, tight hamstrings. Not necessarily short, but kind of tight hamstrings. Is there any relationship to back? Because I know that it's something which, you know, you know, you see on blog posts, you know, hamstrings pull your pelvis out of alignment, and hamstrings, you know, tilt your pelvis the wrong way, and that type of thing. So you can see how then, you know, you lengthen hamstrings, it's not going to have that pull on the pelvis. Does it work that way? I mean, is it that simple? No. It's, uh, it's pretty, <laughs> yeah, I think I've been pretty, pretty, uh, reasonable so far. And I'd say that this is one of those cases where it's just not like, sorry. Um, Good. It, it just goes along with the whole posture conversation that we began with. And 
I think the muscle length and muscle imbalance discussions really coincide with those things. And that's where you see a lot of the people that are big posture advocates tend to also base a lot of their treatments and beliefs, not only on posture, but muscle length and muscle imbalances. And unfortunately, like we don't really see that stand out as having a meaningful change or meaningful impact on pain performance, most things. And I think that when you're looking at that, you know, posture and look at the Olympics, you know, that's a really good thing to, or any, or the Paralympics, you know, you see people running, jumping, throwing, doing, you know, the pushing the limits of human performance with an anterior pelvic tilt, you know, which, you know, Mrs. Smith, who's 40 has been told that's the reason for her 10 years of low back pain. There's somebody else with it with a much, you know, bigger, you know, people might call it a sway back or an anterior pelvic tilt. And she's just won a gold medal at the Olympics, you know, do, doing a do, doing a marathon or running 100 meters or whatever it might be. So, you know, people with all sorts of changes in postures and changes in muscle length and changes in mobility, you know, are all over the world doing some incredible things. And it just shows that humans are incredibly resilient. We're incredibly adapt- adaptable and we can do so much with, you know, also with the odds stacked against you with that, you know, anterior pelvic tilt or that sh- or those short hamstrings really, I guess. Yeah. Humans are awesome. Humans, humans are awesome. So I think that kind of brings us full circle really then and to kind of, we went from, you know, postures to postures in, in weightlifting to kind of then stretching for weightlifting and stretching kind of back to posture again. So we kind of, you know, segued into a nice kind of, kind of circle there really. So I try to keep these podcasts around kind of the hour mark anyway we do. Um, and we're kind of just, just on the hour mark now. So I think, you know, that kind of knock over my microphone there, that, um, that, you know, sums up really nicely for me today. And I think we've really touched on some things that get peddled a lot. And I hope that people listening have understood what we said, because I know some of it has been in, in quite a lot of depth, but, you know, lots of people really like some really in-depth talk about sarcomeres and, and, and muscle length. But even if you don't, then there's a lot of takeaway information in there that, you know, hopefully can help you understand why you've got your back pain and then may not, you know, and help you to explore other options to help manage whether this is a long-term pain or a, you know, a short-term pain. We've spoken before about other myths, you know, like bed rest being bad and and those type of things. And I think those are kind of working their way out slowly, but these are still a few which people are clinging on for dear life, whether that's patients or therapists. So we're doing our part to <laughs> to kind of weed them out of the, uh, uh, of the, of the, the, of the language, I guess. Um, so yeah. thank you so much for joining us today, Sam. Um, it's been an invaluable, invaluable episode. And I think this is a, a really important one and I hope people get a lot from it. Thanks for having me. No worries. Can I just, uh, just again, can you tell us where people can go to find more about you? Where can people read your blog and read some of the, you know, in-depth things we've spoken about today? Yeah. If you want to find basically anything that I write about injuries or performance or injuries and pain, you can find it on e3rehab.com. We have blogs, YouTube videos, we have our own podcast. And then additionally, if you're looking for more on the performance side of things, I have a company called Citizen Athletics and we've got a blog and also lots of video content there. Brilliant. And we will post all the links to all of those in uh, in the show notes beneath. So uh, have a look and uh, I guess that's it from me. So thank you very much for joining us and thank you for joining us, Sam. So good night from me and good night from you. Mm-hmm.